Genre. everyone and welcome to the protagonist podcast where each week we look at a great character in a great story except when we don't i'm joe dorowski and this week we're discussing the popular part of popular culture and joining me for the discussion is returning guest kirsta christensen welcome back kirsta hello uh very glad to have you on and i know that topic may sound a little like like just hearing it you might not grasp exactly what it is that we're gonna be tackling this is inspired by a newsletter written by Matthew Claxton that was released on May 8th, 2022 called unsettling futures, Brandon Sanderson fame and the future of the long tail. And it's kind of a, a long think piece about popularity and the algorithm and marketability and uh, audience discovery of, of new works um, and all, uh, you know, a lot of the things that we, um, that troubled the notion of a meritocracy when it comes to art <laughs> sure. uh, that I, I think we all cling to the ideal that if someone is talented enough, they will be discovered and become popular. We have ample evidence to the contrary, but we still like to tell ourselves uh, that all the art we're consuming is from the best and brightest. Uh, and anyone who hasn't made it um, it's, you know, they haven't either worked hard enough or they lack enough talent. <laughs> Otherwise they would have made it. And this newsletter um, it's really thought provoking and and really interesting um, to look at. And it, I was immediately making connections with a few um, things that I have read or listened to uh, before, including a book called um, Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity. I think that's the full title of it. Let me just double check that title. Um, uh, and it's by Derek Thompson. Uh, and uh, I, oh, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction is the rest of that subtitle. Uh, and when I had kind of offhandedly mentioned that I read this, Kirsten, you immediately were like, oh, I read that too. And you had some connections that you were making as well. And yeah, we read the, said, read the newsletter, I should say. I haven't read the book. Right. The, 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 that newsletter uh, by Matthew Claxton. And then we, we kind of immediately said, there's probably a special episode of the podcast in, in talking about these ideas. Yes, we were we were recording another episode of the podcast when we suddenly brainstormed this episode uh, mid-episode. So it was sort of like the Russian nesting dolls of podcast episodes. And truth be told, I'm not sure if this episode is coming out before or after audiences will have heard us discover oh, the idea for this episode. <laughs> I can't remember if it was in the Lois and Clark episode or the Batman the Animated Series episode. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, messing up the timeline, similar to Primer, another episode that I've already recorded that won't be coming out anytime <laughs> soon. <laughs> oh, I'm excited for that one. That'll be interesting. Um, and this, I, I think these ideas that um, uh, Claxton is, is getting at are really important for us to be mindful of as audiences and as consumers of art and entertainment. Um, but certainly, you know, from the creator set point of view, I think these are going to be front and center for a lot of people. And um, I believe Claxton is a science fiction writer. Is that accurate? I'm not super familiar with his fiction work. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I think he was, he was plugging his science fiction at the, at the end of, mm -hmm. at the end of the essay or, or below the essay when he was posting it on social media. Right. Um, and he talks about something that's called, I mean, he, he acknowledges there's this idea of like the mid list. Uh, and Kirsten, as someone who is much more uh, familiar, I think, with with the nature of publishing and uh, and the way these lists works, what, how would you define the mid list for any listeners? 
Oh, I think, well, and and then, you know, immediately I'm thinking of people who are even more versed in publishing. Um, I, I would probably define the mid-list as people who are not, you know, the most popular, best-selling, top-of-the-charts people, but can maybe earn a living as an author. Um, mm-hmm. So they're, you know, they're doing okay. They're getting by. They keep getting contracts. They're, they're not trying to break in. They've already broken in. Um, and so they're just kind of like in a maintenance sort of phase. Right. But they haven't um, either had, had the bestseller that makes them a household name or the mm-hmm. major adaptations <laughs> that, that can make right. them right. Uh, a household name or, and then the, the, um, you know, accompanying monetary compensation that would come from either yeah. of those events um, taking place. And part of the premise of his newsletter is arguing against the idea that I remember hearing about uh, in the earlier days of the internet. And I think he even cites an article from like 2005 or six um, that the internet is going to democratize tastes and the mid list is going to expand and grow. And what he is arguing is that the mid list is shrinking and uh, the bestsellers and, or, or the most famous names are becoming more successful because of the internet, uh, which on its face, a lot of people assumed the internet would be this grand, you know, great leveling field for right. for art and uh, storytelling. Do we want to maybe define the long tail, or do you, or you know talk about what that means? It, it's a it's a statistics term, and he uses it in the in the title of the book, and basically it refers to a statistical distribution where you have at the extremes you have this kind of well and describing, you know, now I'm thinking describing graphs in an audio format is a really good idea. Um, Basically, (laughs) you have, you know, you have something that kind of slopes down, and then it gets smaller and smaller and thinner and thinner. And so you think think of like a bell curve that has long tails at both ends. Um, In this case, though, he's probably talking about something like a power law distribution, which is, which is a much more, it's, it's not symmetrical, it's a it's kind of almost like an L-shaped curve where you have a really, really high, you start out really, really high, and then you kind of crash down immediately, and then you curve out gently for a really, really long time. Or you can just Google a picture of long tail distribution. But long tail distribution is really interesting because um, bell curves occur when you have forces pulling you in both directions. So like height is a good example where we have some genes that make us taller and some genes that make us shorter. And every time you have a new baby, you're kind of mixing up those genes. And so on average, most people are in the middle. A few people are really tall. A few people are really short, but like mostly we're kind of in the middle because we're shaking that up. And long tail distributions occur when, um, when you have, instead of having forces that are pulling you in opposite directions, so something's making you taller, something's making you shorter, you have forces that compound each other in one single direction. So the more popular something gets, the more popular it becomes. Or the more valuable something is known to be, the more valuable it becomes. Or the richer someone is, the richer they become. So like wealth distribution is a power law curve where you have a tiny group of people that have like half the money in the world and they keep getting richer and richer and richer because having money means they get more money. Or like art auctions famously. Mm-hmm. Um you, you know, you'll have a bunch of paintings and maybe one of them is by someone who's really famous. So that one will be like twice the price of the next one. And that'll be twice the price of the next one. And then it kind of goes down book sales, music sales, um, you know, like lots of different kinds of things. So anything where popular popularity kind of builds on top of itself, or like if you think of something going viral, like what's the, you know, on YouTube, how many, how many views has the average YouTube video got? It might be zero. 
like honestly, or it might be one or something, because there's so much of that stuff that's never been seen before. But there are a few things at the very, very end that are like really, really high up there. And so those are like the things that are going viral and skewing. And then the long tail is the stuff at the very, very, very other end that's really long that we can get to because we can we can see those YouTube videos that have zero views. We have access to them in ways we wouldn't have had access to them before, but nobody's watching them. Yes. And um, th the book that uh, Claxton's talking about was called The Long Tail. Um, and it was part of, I think it started out as an article and then became a book called The Long Tail um, that was talking about the idea that with the internet, um, maybe there's like a very niche uh, book that gets written and it's never going to be a bestseller, but maybe 5,000 people will find it. And that $5,000, yeah. you know, those 5,000 purchases might really benefit the, uh, the author. Um, and the idea was that um, through online book purchase, uh, purchase uh, platforms like Amazon, uh, and then through, uh, you know, at the time, I'm sure it would have been arguing about like discussion boards, but now social media and other things, people would be able to share their more niche tastes and more things would end up being discovered. What we're finding, uh, Classic argues, is that the the most popular remains the most popular, <laughs> and there's yeah. not as much discussion about the mid list or the long tail um, mm -hmm. as uh, we would have anticipated uh, in the earlier days. And one example that he gives that once he started to say, I'm like, oh, I, I experienced that, but never thought about it critically, is Brandon Sanderson's like omnipresence for fantasy. Like he mm -hmm. is one of the most prolific and successful writers. Um, and if you go to Amazon to purchase a Brandon Sanderson book, because he is so prolific, uh, after you click on it to purchase it, uh, Amazon, the algorithm is likely to recommend other books for you. But what does yeah. Amazon end up recommending? Or One if of you the other at, 20 yeah. Brandon Sanderson books is what right. Amazon's going to recommend. Or if you look at like the top, you know, the top 20 list of bestsellers of fantasy, he's probably on that list. Which means you go through that list and you say, oh, hey, I have a meaning to read that book. And so then you buy it and then you contribute again to that top 20. Whereas if Amazon randomly showed you 20 books from anywhere on the list, maybe you'd find something a lot more obscure. You know, mm -hmm. that would kind of flatten out the curve, but you'd be less likely to make a purchase. And so Amazon is uh, motivated to just show you the top of the list by default. And then you have to like really dig to get down, you know, deep down farther into the list. Yeah. And if you are, I mean, one argument would be that if you buy, say, um, you know, a Brandon Sanderson book, maybe the algorithm should recommend, uh, you know, a, a, a you know, you, you like high fantasy with, uh, you know, with large casts, with multiple points of view, things like that. But instead, the algorithm is more likely to just say, here's eight other Brandon Sanderson books mm -hmm. <laughs> that, you, that you can purchase. Um, and so the, the discoverability uh, becomes harder. Yeah. And I think this idea of of popularity is really fascinating to start digging into. And um, the the opening of Claxton's newsletter talks about Danny Boyle's film Yesterday. Have you seen Yesterday? Um, I have not, but I am familiar with the premise. So the, the premise is that a man um, wakes up through magical realism in a world where he's the only one who remembers the Beatles. Uh, and no one else does. And he's a musician who has been trying to break, break through. Uh, and now he knows the entire Beatles catalog. <laughs> and eventually, uh, this man named Jack uh, becomes a worldwide celebrity uh, by playing Beatles songs. And 
uh, Claxton opens this by saying one of the worst science fiction premises of the last 50 years is that Danny Boyle's to the, is that of Danny Boyle's 2019 film yesterday. And he imagines a man who wakes up to find himself in a world in which the Beatles never existed. And he's the one who remembers their song. So he becomes famous singing them as his own in the 2010s. This is ob- obvious. And then he's going to swear <laughs> about it, but we're a family friendly show. So I won't do that. Um, <laughs> I think there's a lot correct in what Claxton identifies as like a flaw in this. However, one thing that I think the film gets right that is really important for how popularity works is that um, Jack Malik, the man who remembers the Beatles in the film yesterday, does not become famous by just releasing his songs into the ether. Um, he is doing his best to get them heard, and uh, he finds a very small producer who makes a record. But then uh, that record, uh, one of the songs gets heard by Ed Sheeran, and Ed Sheeran has him be, uh, become an opening act on his tour. And the idea that one popular person saying this other thing is good can increase its popularity is mm-hmm. act- is, is very, very real. Uh, yeah. Just releasing it onto the internet and becoming discovered and becoming, uh, you know, meteorically rising, that is extremely unlikely. Um, but there are significant examples we can point to where like a famous music artist pointed at another music artist and said, I love this, you should all listen to it. And that artist became a bestseller because of the influence of the one. And so the film, including Ed Sheeran, if they had not included Ed Sheeran, I think Claxton's uh, argument would be much stronger. But the the fact that Ed Sheeran is a key cog in the success of this person um, is is something that the filmmakers had to do uh, to to increase the plausibility in this magical realism film that is completely divorced from our reality anyway. Um, and I, one example of that, that, that oh, I was going to say, they get talked about in the Hitmakers book. Uh, they give the example of um, Carly Rae Jepsen's Call Me Maybe, uh-huh. a song that is inescapable even to this day on the radio. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but they talk about that uh, she released it and uh, it made it to a very low level of radio uh, like top 100 in Canada. Um, and that seemed to be like its most likely endpoint. But then Justin Bieber heard the song on the radio in Canada and tweeted out that this was one of the catchiest songs and they immediately saw an increase in it. And then he also released a video of him and Selena Gomez lip syncing to uh, like just on Twitter. I think it was. Oh, uh, he wow. just yeah. made a video of him and, and uh, Selena Gomez lip syncing Call Me Maybe together. And that video of uh, Justin Bieber and Selena Gomez had over 80 million views. Mm-hmm. And that is when Call Me Maybe became an international hit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and the catchiness of the song was always there, but it, was, it, it wasn't going to escape, you know, into, uh, you know, uh, earworm territory that we're all somewhat familiar with today without that boost from someone who was already in that upper level. Yeah. Um, going back to, you know, what makes a song popular, I, I saw a comment when someone talking about the Rihanna song Umbrella, which has like a, um, which has in the chorus that like repeats Umbrella, Ella, Ella, Ella. And someone was talking about like how much money that song made and how much the songwriters got paid. They're like, you know, that means this person got paid thousands of dollars just to write Ella, 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 you know, which on the one hand, if you take like how much money the song has made and just divide it by like all the words in the song can be like, yeah, they got paid this much per word, but like they didn't. It's because, you know, it's the whole, it's the fact that it's Rihanna who sang it. And it's the fact that she, you know, sang it at a certain point in her career when she's been building this career for so long. And it's the fact that like the song works together, you know, in this very catchy way. Like this is, this is not a situation where you can just like, boil it down and look at the atoms of the song and be like okay the syllable ella is worth like this many thousands of dollars because it's not you know um it's a it's a combination of all the people involved and the you know the producers and the singers and the person's career and you know 
or like if you think of like songs that people don't realize are covers because um, because the cover was so much more popular than the original song, which like, okay, clearly the bones of what was there was there in the original song and the original song was released. And then somehow in a different situation under different circumstances, someone did a cover of it and released it and then it became much more popular. And so it's not even like the song itself. It's like the circumstances and the context and the person. And yeah, there's just a lot more going on than just, you know, counting letters or counting syllables or, or you know, boiling down words and rhymes and, and letters. Yeah. And I, I do very much enjoy like the idea of, um, you know, this, the, the science of popularity, you know, that, that subtitle of this book, because mm-hmm. if you could get it down to an exact science, everything that was made, that was released would be part of the formula to become the most popular thing. Um, well, yeah, and, right. and, 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 it, think, and it can't. Yeah. And if you think of like how much money studios have to spend on giant movies or giant songs or giant, you know, because if they could if they could figure out how to make something that was popular every single time they would and certainly they're you know marvel has basically a money printing machine with their set of set of films but even then big studios still produce things that are flops you know they still put all their money into it and try to do it which just shows how much of a science it isn't because they have so much information available and they're trying to look at so many different things and then you know they'll still have big projects that flop and they'll still have small projects that come out of nowhere like that that tap into something that um that they didn't realize was an untapped market um so yeah you know if if, if money if money and data could buy success they would buy it every time but they don't they, they can't <laughs> so. yeah and um also uh, you know by the same hand talent can't either um there, there's no guarantee of it because there's always so many factors um and, and like i said we, we really like to imagine that with with talent and uh hard work anyone's going to make it uh, yeah. but we we don't always see what those factors are historically we know what a lot of them were um mm-hmm. virginia Woolf famously wrote about the idea of shakespeare having a sister who was as talented as him and yeah. uh postulated that she would end up committing suicide because, oh. <laughs> uh, because she would have no outlet uh for the vast creativity that she would possess and yeah. so and how many uh I mean, throughout history, we we could argue from European and, and American points of view, how many non-white men, you know, would have had equal amount of talent to break through and become known, mm-hmm. uh, but just were never allowed an opportunity. Uh, and that's one of the, uh, I think, alluring ideas of the Internet was that, well, so many of those gatekeepers are being removed from us yeah. uh, because a lot of those traditional gatekeepers would come through the uh, economic, uh, you know, um, barriers to like getting your work out there Uh, you have to go through certain systems in order for work to be mass produced to become a mass consumed product and a lot of those gatekeepers would exclude people based on race or gender or education uh or or, uh geography like any number of reasons that people Mm -hmm. might be excluded um historically and that's where you hear all the time this argument about the democratization of the internet that so many of those gatekeepers are being removed from people and it just hasn't created as level playing field as we might have wanted. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think there are isolated incidents of people breaking out mm-hmm. um who who would not have broken out of the gatekeeper system. I'm thinking of um I guess it's been a couple of years now since that since that nice Scottish mailman who liked to sing sea shanties <laughs> became, yes. you know, this big sensation and and he and his 
videos went big because someone else recorded a duet with him and that person had a really great voice and like you know and and that guy is a white man but but still like i don't think anyone was like yes sea shanties are definitely going to be you know the next big <laughs> this thing is the music. next big thing in, in the, the world is yeah. looking for this during a pandemic yeah. is is yeah. old scottish sea shanties <laughs> right. um but at the same time and and i and i happen to to follow him on instagram and so i'll see he'll be like you know thank you berlin and he'll be like in this giant arena or something right so so like clearly it's worked for him but at the same time you can't be like okay you know, get on TikTok and sing sea shanties. That is clearly the path to success because like, yes, it worked for that guy in that exact moment, but that doesn't mean that that path, you know, that's, 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 that's the lightning strikes you path to getting to becoming, um, to becoming successful and famous. And that's not something you can really, you can replicate or, or, you know, you just, you just like, it's too unlikely to be able to replicate that. You'll have to find another path. And I think Hollywood has always promoted like some of those kinds of stories that, you know, this unknown person was discovered and, uh, you know, became a leading actress or leading actor or or songwriter or something. You know, the moment of their discovery gets mythologized Mm -hmm. and those sorts of things. Um, So that kind of story, like you're saying, that lightning in a bottle uh, moment is 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 something we do still see, uh, you know, with with the Internet. Um, But it has happened before. But uh, I I think the mythology of that is like, well, this is how it always is for everyone who becomes successful. (laughs) Um, That that every singing mailman would get their day, which has not proved to be true. Mm-hmm. And we see, I mean, there's so many reality shows that are built on the premise of giving everyone their chance, uh, you know, yeah. the the singing competitions and the dance competitions and those sorts of things. Um, when there still remain many gatekeepers <laughs> between mm-hmm. uh, the average person and getting onto any of those. Um, uh, there, one other thing that um, I, I wanted to mention when it comes to this idea of like how something becomes popular um, is the Kaibot 7. Are you familiar with the Kaibot 7? um an impressionist I, painting oh okay is the, is this like i maybe i am T- tell the story and and okay. at the end of it i'll either say wow i didn't know that or yes that anecdote sounds familiar early days of french impressionism impressionists are looked down upon by the establishment these are the rebels of the art world and uh <laughs> the establishment the, the, the more conservative those rainy scenes on Paris streets. <laughs> yes, uh, but 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 it is not realistic uh, and we cannot have that. And so they're being re- they're not allowed to be shown in in museums. Uh, their work is on the whole not selling well. Um, and there's a man named Kaibot who comes from a wealthy family uh, and falls in love with impressionism and himself is an impressionist painter as well. Um, like he, he decides this is the 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 style uh, that is best uh, a most evocative for him personally, but also he loves the art of others. Um, and because he comes from a wealthy family, he will buy the art that will not sell sell from his friends, the other impressionist painters that he's hanging out with. Um, guys like Monet, Manet, Cezanne, Sisley, Pizarro. Just, um, you know, your friends, just some dudes. Yeah, it, it's estimated <laughs> that like his personal collection of buying the art that they could not sell. So not only was this like their art that they themselves are struggling to sell. These are the paintings that just no one's showing any interest in that he's buying. Right. It's estimated that today, this would be billions of dollars, uh, yeah. what he was, he was buying. Um, and so he's buying his friend's work to kind of support them because he himself is more independent in his will. Um, he is going to, uh, gift his collection to a museum, uh, with stipulations that they, they show all of it. <laughs> um, and I believe there's also 
some monetary inducements for this to happen. The museum goes to court to try and just get the monetary inducements and not show <laughs> <laughs> the art. <laughs> and eventually that's uh, it, like, it becomes like a public scandal. And like museum curators are saying like, if this is shown in to, to the public, it will be the greatest disgrace of our values of what <laughs> art is. Like we, we've lost it. It's gone. Uh, but finally, this does does become the first impressionist art exhibit. And if you can think of an impressionist painter, it's probably one of the seven that Kaibot had in his personal collection from his friends, Monet, Manet, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and uh, the public is very curious about the scandalous art <laughs> because it's been in the press. <laughs> and so it becomes a very successful art exhibit. Uh, and uh, people become very interested in impressionism. And these seven become known as the Impressionist Masters. Hmm. Not because they were the most popular in their day during their lifetime. It is because of Kaibot and his will yeah. and that they become part of the first Impressionist art exhibit in a major French art museum. And then this art exhibit ends up going around because it's so popular <laughs> um, to the point that uh, they did an analysis of like examples of Impressionism in, I want to say it was at Stanford. I can't, mm -hmm. I'm not hundred percent sure uh, in like every art book in the Stanford library that mentions Impressionism. They went and tallied it, and it was such a high percentage. I don't want to put the number on it, but it's mm -hmm. a very high percentage. It's just it's going to be one of these seven sure. that gets mentioned. And there sure. were hundreds of people, you know, artists that were working with Impressionism. But this right. is not only do they become historically known as the fathers of Impressionism, but their work is so much more valuable than any other contemporary Impressionist uh, in their lifetime. And it's this kind of weird fluke that they literally become the canon of what impressionism is and, uh, and ironically and, if they had sold a little better at the time they might not have become so popular and valuable now mm -hmm. and this is what like i, I talked to my students about american literature and we, we you know we're, we're gonna go read through the canon of american literature that's what this class is designed to do but just always have in the back of your mind the canon is mm -hmm. wildly in by chance what has mm -hmm. become held up as the great American literature. These are the seven that are held up as the great, uh, great impressionist painters. Why? Because their friend had enough money to buy their stuff that wouldn't sell. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. really it. <laughs> that's, that's how they ended up. Um, now, um, in saying that, I don't want to disparage the talent and the quality of anything that is in the American literary canon or of those seven painters. I think sure. there's probably something intrinsically interesting and good about all that stuff. But what has been excluded that maybe is as intrinsically, uh, you know, evocative or of artistic merit um, that just hasn't found a place in the canon, an awful yeah. lot of things, <laughs> you or, know, or a huge percent the, of what has been produced. Yeah. What, what is in the mid-list canon? Mm -hmm. You know, something that, that gets mentioned if you there um, there's a so so the the word game Wordle has spawned all these clones um, and there's one called Artle, A-R-T-L-E, where you have four pictures usually paintings and you have to try to identify the artist and it and like the fourth one is usually like a really really iconic picture of theirs and so I'm going through and I like I know a fair amount about art history but I'm not like I didn't like study it formally or anything um and it's interesting to see how you know who I know and who I don't know but it's the same kind of thing of like okay what you know it's, it's like at what percentile do we like everyone's gonna get um everyone's gonna get Van Gogh and everyone's gonna get Da Vinci 
And then like, you know, you get down to like Gauguin or Matisse or Hopper or Monet, you know. Um, yeah. So at what point do you cut off? Because I think either today or yesterday, there was some photographer who I didn't know, because apparently I only know Dorothea Lange and Ansel Adams. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting question of like, what I makes could have only said Ansel wondering. Adams. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, Dorothea Lange is, you know, the picture of the, of the woman in the depression who's like mm -hmm. looking yes. really, that's Dorothea Lange. Okay. I, I have that picture on a slide that I use in my class to, when I talk about postmodernism. Yeah. Um, but because that's, that picture gets so, um, mm -hmm. borrowed and used to evoke the great depression. Yeah. Um, and I think I have her name on the slide to give her credit, but I couldn't I'm have pulled sure it out do. from, so that, so that's one I of those, pulled it out from my head. Yes. You, you know, her work by sight, if not her, her, her name. Yeah. Yeah, uh, when we talk about the Hunger Games in my class, because <laughs> oh, in right. the film, they, they evoke <laughs> that image uh, in a yes. frame of the film where it's like a woman looking out through the window. It's like, you oh, teach well, this... some fun classes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think so. <laughs> How else would you explain postmodernism, I ask you? That, that, you know, you're, you're, that's a good point. What other possible way could you could you explain it? Um, and when we're talking about this with popularity, there have been a number of interesting studies uh, that have been done. Many of the studies I found or that get talked about uh, in the works that I'm reading, like this newsletter or like that book, Hitmakers, tend to talk about music because it turns out um, studying how music is, how popular music is, uh, and also um, getting people to rate songs based on a 30 second snippet is much easier <laughs> than yeah. trying to to rate the long life of books uh or, right. or films uh or, and, and understand our art films yeah and yeah. people often listen to the same songs over and over again and so that gives you more data to work with you know e even people who really love a book don't read it 30 times a year where you might listen to the same song 30 times in a week if it was a song you just really liked at the time. And, and with so much music being consumed uh, digitally, uh, we can get very granular data on yeah. how often a song is being listened to. Uh, so that seems to be one area of popularity that people are able to make some interesting discoveries. Um, I know there's a couple things that you had noted um, about this. So is there anything you want to say about song popularity and some uh, discoveries that have been made about this? Yeah, so so the author um, the author of this newsletter that we keep referencing talks about um, a couple of studies that I'm familiar with. They're done by um, by some, you know, and I, they're, they're they're researchers. I genuinely don't know like what they're researching if they're doing like data science or sociology or anyway, people because their work is kind of interdisciplinary. But it's um, Salganic, Dodds, and Watts. And what they did is um, they wanted to, let's see. Oh, they're do, oh, it's economics. Of course, they're economists. That's right. Economists do everything. Um, so, um, well, if it can be monetized, right? Right. Right. <laughs> yes. Or at least, or at least the, the corresponding author, author is, um, is doing economics. Um, so what they did is basically they wanted to study, um, you know, like, like is if you have like a hit song of the summer, like Call Me Maybe or or something else, is it something intrinsic to that song where like the, you know, the goodness of that song is just something we all recognize and therefore we all think it's popular? Or is it the fact that everyone thinks it's popular that becomes kind of self-reinforcing um, and then makes the song popular? And so it's sort of like given a parallel universe 
would that same song still have become the song of the summer or would it have been like popular, but not quite so trendy, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And, and so they're trying to figure out like how they could set this up. And so what they actually do is they create a bunch of little mini universes in which to test this out because they realize they can, you know, you can't do this in real life. You can't create a parallel universe to figure out if, if, you know, call me maybe your Gangnam style or whatever is, is still going to be as popular. But what they do is they contact a bunch of musicians and they, um, and they get unreleased tracks from them. And so these are songs that no one's ever heard before. And I can't remember how many they had. I think they had like 20 or something. And they go through and they have, um, they recruit a bunch of participants and they slot each of them into like randomly into a different universe. And there's, I think there's like maybe a half dozen universes total. And in these universes, each of the participants can rate how much they like a song and they can listen to it as many times as they want and they can download it if they want. And in some of the universes, they can see what other people are doing, other people, like how often other people are listening to the songs. And in some of the universes, they can't. I think, maybe, or maybe there's one universe where they can't wear like the control universe. So there's one universe where like you are the only one in the universe who has access to information and you get to decide on yourself, do you like a song or not? And so like from that universe, they get kind of, and they, ha- and they have like hundreds of people in these little universes. And from the control universe, they get information about like, what are overall the best songs or the worst songs? And most of the songs are pretty good, but there are some that are like, even with no one being able to communicate with anyone else, this song is more popular, this song is less popular. So that's kind of their control. But in the other universes, there's often a song that becomes a runaway hit that, you know, becomes kind of goes viral in the sense of, in the sense of being that much more popular than all the other songs, but it's a different song in each of the universes. And it's generally a song that's one of the better songs overall. So compared with the control universe, but it's, it's kind of, and then, so, and so, and like the good songs overall tend to be pretty popular, but the one that's the breakout, the one that's like the huge hit that even people, you know, that that's twice as popular as everything else or something is different in all of them. And so Mm -hmm. from that, they conclude that yes, there is a little bit, you know, there is such a thing as, baseline quality and something does have to kind of meet that baseline in order to become super, super virally popular. But um, beyond that, social factors play a huge, huge role in terms of, you know, checking out what other people like or having other people's taste reinforce your own or, you know, taking other people's word for something. Um, and, and anyway, they've done a bunch of other studies on that too, which are kind of interesting, but, but yeah, basically like they cannot, they've, they've done further studies where they try to like, they, they give people like fake information where they take some of the worst songs and, and flip the download data to make it look like one of the best songs. And they cannot force a song to go virally popular because people will hear it and be like, well, that's the best song. And actually people tend to tend to download fewer, fewer songs overall. So they hear that they're like, well, if that's the best song, then I'm not interested in that, any of these songs, which is kind of interesting. So they cannot force something bad to be popular. Um, mm-hmm. But when something reaches a certain level of quality, you know, little, little social factors tend to play on themselves. And any one of them can be a runaway popular song and they can't predict what it is. 
That's really interesting. Um, Derek Thompson in Hitmakers talks about that. I think it's iHeartRadio. And then there's another company in the UK that does a similar thing where they will take like new songs that are coming out and get them rated on scales. And I think it was in the iHeartRadio scale. Anything that clears 60 has the chance to become a breakout song. They are not predicting it will, but they're like, if it's below 60, it will not. But if it's above 60, it may. And Mm -hmm. in the UK system, their rating scale is a little different. But it's anything above 80. Yeah. And they gave examples of songs that, you know, that are above there that become huge hits. And they said the the only, um, like one major outlier is Adele's um, album 21. Uh Every single song on it, like scored over 100. Oh, wow. Well, yes. (laughs) They said that was like, it's just such a massive outlier uh, for for rating these songs. But they do it basically for like every new song. They've got a, you know, I, I don't know how many people it was, but they do ratings and they get an average rating in the end. And they're like, well, this one has the chance. And Mm -hmm. then it is factors of marketing of uh airplay on the radio of um maybe virality of uh you know getting attached to a uh uh, you know uh an ad campaign or Uh um a um a viral video where someone lip syncs to it (laughs) you know anything like that um or the existing popularity of the artist all those things are going to be part of what can make that song become one of the super hits um for it but it has to cross that threshold it seems before it would even have that chance Mm -hmm. I love that idea of like the multiple universes. <laughs> that, oh yeah. 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 That, that, uh, the, that, you know, that's like a, a trope now in, in storytelling where instead of time loops, we're all multiverses right, right now. Right. Um, <laughs> yes. The, the, the new low key Marvel film where we have different universes that have a slightly different popular song of the summer. Everything else is the same, pretty chill. Nothing really happens. It's just like, <laughs> you know, the, the, the bop that's on the radio is slightly different. Yeah. Um, I guess one question about like these ideas of popularity that we've kind of been exploring that is worth talking about is um, why does any of this matter? Like why, why should we be concerned about what is <laughs> going to become popular? Um, yeah. You and I are not profiting off of anything that becomes a hit. Uh, oh, well now you tell me, <laughs> you know, so, so uh, you know, we have no uh, economic stake in any of this, um, you know, besides thinking, Oh, well that's kind of interesting. Why does any of this matter, do you think? Yeah, and I um I I was thinking this over when we were, you know, when we were talking about uh planning this, planning to record this session, and I kind of broke it down into three parts. Um mm-hmm. and I thought, you know, like the reader and the writer and then like society as a whole, although, you know, for reader and writer, you could also think listener for music or viewer for television or something. I think this, you know, this, this, it's a lot of different kind of media, but, but books are a nice kind of framework. And I, you know, I was looking at, um, I, when I look at some of the, some of the things that are the most meaningful to me, some of the, you know, books or films or whatever, it's not necessarily the ones that are the most popular. Um, Because, you know, if you're on like, book social media or film social media, it's really easy to see. Or or even if you're just looking at like box office performance or something, it's actually pretty easy to to get in, you know, some kind of data about like what movies everyone's watching, what TV shows everyone's watching, what books everyone's reading. Um, but the things that matter, the things that have kind of stuck with me the most are not necessarily the things that are most popular. But if I'm only getting exposed to kind of those like top 10 lists over and over again, then I'm missing out on things that might 
be really meaningful for me, you know, um, unless, I mean, unless my taste happens to correlate exactly with the algorithm and the, you know, publisher marketing budgets or studio marketing budgets, which, you know, I guess if, if it does, then, then it's my lucky day. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, you know, the, it, it's funny, some of the things I've read, like, that I love, and then I struggle to recommend them to people because they're so weird. It's like, I love this. And this is so specifically for me that I don't know anyone else in the universe who would like this, you know. Um, but yeah, there are, there are, and as a, you know, I'm a librarian, I work in an academic library. And like, I, I, sometimes you'll just come across really weird things. The other day, I saw a book, actually, because it was, um, it was on hold for someone else had come in. And, and so sometimes you see like, oh, what, like, what's, that's even a form of information of like, what are other people reading? And there was this book and it was called Odd Apples. And it was just photographs of weird, like varieties of apples. <laughs> and it was just this project that this photographer had done. And like some of the apples had like a really, really dark red flesh like you like it almost looked like a tomato when you cut into it and some of them had like really really white skin and some of them like kind of grew like they they frequently grew in pairs where it was like two apples smushed together like they always grew anyway and it was and but they also talks about like the history of apples is fruit and how apples are different from a lot of fruit because the seeds of an apple tree will grow different fruits than the than the tree itself anyway like like it'll grow, it'll grow different seeds and so like you're always getting new kinds of apples green grown and you have these heritage varieties and it was just this really cool book and like I only happened across it by chance and you know and I put it on hold after whoever was the first person who got it and I read it and I loved it and I'm gonna like give it to a friend of mine because <laughs> she lives in Maine and that's where like and, and then he says that when he wrote the book he says he talked about um where he found each of the apples because there are like a few like like farms that are like dedicated to preserving heritage varieties and one of them's in Maine so she can actually go try the apples which I can't um and it's just you know it was just very serendipitous but this is not whatever you know this is not whatever New York Times bestseller list book is currently for nonfiction or art or whatever um and and if you limit yourself to just the most popular things or just the things that everything's doing you miss out on stuff like that they can kind of touch you in this very personal way that you wouldn't expect so that's like one way is that you know the odds of the most popular algorithmically popular thing being the exact thing that's most meaningful for you are pretty low and so there's probably something out there that would be meaningful to you you know beautiful interesting um that you're missing out on yeah it, it kind of puts me in mind a little bit of um Oh, I can't remember who it was, but he was the programming exec at NBC in the 1970s. Um, you know, you probably have that at the tip of your tongue. <laughs> I'm sure. But his philosophy was <laughs> was yes. to put on what he called LOP or least objectionable programming because uh -huh. he figured in that world of uh, three channels, yeah. um, as long as you're not offending someone, you're going to land on a fair number of viewers. Uh, and uh, I think sometimes the algorithm may be like gearing towards a, a lop <laughs> what's least objectionable to the most number of sure. people <laughs> although even then i mean even then least objectionable to who because if you look at 70s programming you know a lot of it's probably really sexist or a lot mm -hmm. of it's probably um you know really prejudiced or really so like oh and um, it, 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 it didn't actually work he was fired because right. nbc right. was considered the fourth place out of three networks okay, um, there we but go. this is There's something some... that was like a philosophy uh by someone 
in charge of, you know, one of the only three means of producing yeah. <laughs> entertainment yeah. uh, that was yeah. going to get out in, you know, the, 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 the mass medium of television, which was the mass medium at the time right. uh, was like, no, nah, right. you know, let's just kind of flatten everything, uh, remove, uh, you know, and as you're saying, like f- for that time, you know, mm-hmm. the, the biases of the time being so different than they are uh, 50 years later. Yeah. Um, but it's it's again like in this in this culture of gatekeepers that are preventing or or green what what is being greenlit uh mm-hmm. you know it's it's what's actually getting out there and as you're saying like uh, it's probably not going to cater to any individual yeah. <laughs> it's meant to cater to as broad an audience as is possible yeah and then um and so then so that's one issue is that as a consumer you are missing out on things that you might really really like if if the algorithm is pushing you you know, towards the sort of bland, popular things. Um, and then, you know, I'm I'm not a writer myself, but I have friends who are or who are, you know, filmmakers or playwrights. Um, and then, you know, they talk about how how difficult it is to have to, I mean, even if you have like, a, you know, even if you're, so if you're self-publishing, that's one thing, even if, but even if you're not self-publishing, even if you have, you know, a contract, it's still really difficult to get noticed. And I, you know, I have a friend who's an editor um, at an imprint of a fairly large, you know, an imprint of an imprint of a fairly large um, publishing house, and she still has a hard time getting anything noticed. And so like, as, as a producer, that's really difficult. And that is something that, that came up in the essay that, that there's kind of been a, and I I don't know how much data there is on this, but there's kind of a belief that people who used to be able to get by like mid-list authors that they're actually having their contracts cut back or they're not selling as much. And that's kind of, they're kind of getting squeezed while some of these really, you know, well, well, George R. R. Martin is swimming in a Scrooge McDuck bank vault of money as he does not finish his wheel of time series. (laughs) Not wheel Um, of time, Uh, game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Fans. Well, I mean, Wheel of Time also wasn't finished by by Robert Jordan, but um, different circumstances, right? Right. Hey, maybe maybe Brandon Sanderson wants to finish uh, um, a Game of Thrones. Probably not. Um, uh, it was a noun of nouns. Okay. Um, so. the, the classic fantasy series, noun of nouns. I think about books in terms of their parts of speech and grammatical structure. I don't know about you. I don't, I don't bother with actual words. Say the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Okay. Right. <laughs> starting to go through fantasy series. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, the Chronicles, Chronicles of, Narnia of Narnia would work, right? That's another noun yeah. of noun. Yeah, it's a noun of noun. Um, although that's a, that's a noun of that's a noun of proper noun, which feels a little different. Anyway, this has that's been fair. your grammar minute. Um, uh, so. Um, yeah, so you have these, so you have these authors who are getting squeezed, and and the you know the my the when when these authors talk on on social media, the ones I'm friends with, they're you know they very often say like, look, it makes such a big difference if you leave a review on Amazon, leave a review on Goodreads, you know, mention it on social media. Word of mouth is a really big deal because they're not going to have a something million dollar Kickstarter for their next book, and so they have to employ you know, individuals to kind of try to game the algorithm and make those individual contacts, even if, even if some of the larger algorithmic forces are working against them. I, I just saw something. Oh, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to find it, but it was, it was a Twitter thread about mm-hmm. the Amazon algorithm. 
and someone it, it was like if you are a new author you've probably been told over and over like get your friends to pre-order yeah algorithmically you would actually prefer a slow drip of constant order <laughs> constant really interesting coming coming from amazon in, instead of a, a a a lump up front like the algorithm has kind of been taught to dismiss those. So the thing about pre-orders is that like the bestseller lists are based like, and I think for bookstores, for physical bookstores, you want pre-orders, but there's, this was specifically about the Amazon algorithm. Sure. Sure. Um, That's very interesting. Yeah. Because, because the bestseller list is is based on like all the orders in like the first week or something. And so the pre-orders all pile up. And then when the book comes out, they all get counted. Although even the bestseller lists are very interesting because, and I didn't realize this for a long time, but the bestseller lists are only counting, it's like new books or new editions, I think. Um, because if they were just overall counts, then like Dr. Seuss would outsell most children's literature every week. But that's not very interesting. And so Mm -hmm. they discount. I mean, there's some people who some really big heavy hitters like, you know, probably like C.S. Lewis, um, who outsell everyone every week. Um, And then but you have to discount those so that you actually have something kind of different going on. Um, But yeah, because Amazon, Amazon updates their listings like every hour or something ridiculous. And so I can see for them, actually, the slow drip would make a bigger difference because I did find it. Do you want me to read you some about this? Absolutely. (laughs) It's from Whitney Hemsath or at Whitney Hemsath on, uh, on Twitter is she said she just took a class on understanding Amazon algorithms. And she said the recommendations um, from the class feel counterintuitive, like don't do pre-orders. Don't tell anyone you've, uh, you've even launched at first. She says it has (laughs) to do with teaching the algorithm who your ideal audience is so that the algorithms will market you. Uh, and you want to gradually increase your rank over time. If you get all your friends, family, and fans to pre-order, you'll get a big spike in sales for a day or two, and maybe your rank will be high enough that your algorithms start pushing your books to more people, but strangers will not buy pre-orders of unknown books. And sure. also, if it is a pre-order, it will not ship now, and most people will not ship some or order something on Amazon that's not going to ship immediately. Right. So it's also huh. the timing of of when you, the, the algorithms can start pushing. And so then if the algorithm is pushing you to unknown people, and right. it's not going to ship yet. They're unlikely to pre-order it, and you're going to disappear from the algorithm entirely. Well, and truthfully, you know, if you are like writing like historical romance, what you want to do is you want to have the algorithm push your book to other historical romance readers, not to your friends and family who might mm-hmm. be more of a cross section in general. And so that could actually be a bad thing, where it's just sort of like, you know, better to be in the top fifty in historical romance than in the like top 500 in general interest or something exactly because, yeah yeah interesting it, it, it's, you interesting. want your book to become known to the specific genre that you're in right. that that audience and your friends and family they may be very nice to you and order the book but then the <laughs> algorithm you know sees that their interest is incredibly scattered <laughs> yeah 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 that this doesn't you know and i it's funny i used to think about that occasionally like on, on netflix i'd watch like, like I remember the first time, the first time I watched 500 Days of Summer was also the same week that I watched um, Terminator for the first time. And I'm like, well, that's going to mess up the algorithm a little bit. Um, sometimes it's nice to just throw a curveball at that, uh, you know. At the oh, yeah. I, I think the the shopping for, for gifts for, for someone is always like Amazon. Like, really? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and also, I'm I'm also assuming, I mean, there there are parental controls as well, but I'm also assuming that that's one of the reasons that if you're, if you're, you know, if you have multiple people in a household using the same streaming service, that they would rather that you use 
different profiles so that they know, is it the same person who's watching the quirky rom-com and the, you know, action movie or is it or different the hard people? sci-fi yeah. indie film? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, you're right. I never thought about that, but I think you're totally right on that. Yeah. Oh. Better data for them. New, new insights. Um, and then when when I was going through thinking about you know how these how these um, algorithms affect people, there's also so so in the in the research paper by um, Salganic Dodds and Watts. Want to give them shout outs again? Longtime fans. I don't think they're fans. Um, uh, <laughs> they, you know, they created a a a playing field that was genuinely even because they were able to make it artificially even, you know. And they, I mean, they had some they had some work behind the scenes and the artists that they selected to participate, but there was there weren't, um, you know, they were the only gatekeepers. And once they let the people in, there weren't any other factors that were affecting, you know, whether or not these songs would become popular. But in the real world, we know perfectly well that um, that there are many, many factors at play that promote the work by certain groups of people and kind of artificially depress the work by certain groups of people. And so as a culture, as a whole, if you look at like the, the movies that, you know, make the most money in a given year or have the biggest budgets or something, you know, they're likely to star men and they're likely to star people who are white and they're likely to star people who are straight and they're, or, or playing characters who are straight and, you know, and, and you get, um, and, and, you know, they're likely to be native English speakers or speaking certain varieties of English that are, you know, more prestigious. Um, and, and they're likely to be, you know, able-bodied and not have significant health issues or whatever. And so as a culture, we get, it's like, I I think I've compared it to like playing pool on a tilted pool table where like, regardless of what pocket you're going for, you're going to kind of end up in this other pocket unless you really, really try, you know, to, to, to aim for something else. And that's just not good for society as a whole to have our media focused on the experiences of a certain group of people at the expense of many, many other groups of people. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not good for, it's not good for people, the people whose experiences are not being shown. And it's not good for the people whose experiences are being shown who, you know, can walk around ignorant of the variety of experience in the world. Um, We're going to lose empathy. Uh, We're going to create uh, through the media that we consume. I think we, we, we create a default of what the human is, (laughs) you know? Oh yeah. Uh, Yeah. And and it certainly has come to look a certain way. I mean, to the point that like it it affects everything from economics to linguistic, like, like language that Mm -hmm. we use, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. that we see um, where like for for years we heard the argument, well, like in this old document, when they say he, they mean men and women. Like they didn't. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> but but we've created such a default human being a white right. male uh, right. that it, you can kind of like read it without even catching on it if you're not careful. Yeah. Um, Shannon Hale, who is a, a she, she's written a variety of things. She's mostly known as a children's book author and she kind of started out doing fairy tale retellings. So she has a lot of um, so so those those particular sets of books tend to have female protagonists who are, you know, some are kind of um, I'm, I'm trying to remember if any of them are actual princesses anyway, but, but they're sort of like, you know, part of this wave of fairy tale retellings. And she has some very, very interesting anecdotes about, um, 
you know, when a when a local male author would get invited to come to present at school, they would invite everyone in the school. But when she would be asked to come speak at a school, they would just invite the girls for an assembly. And so this idea that like boys stories are for everyone, but girl stories are just for girls um, and how pernicious that is and how that, you know, plays into a culture in which men don't feel like they have to sympathize with women or, you know, or, or some really really basic um, kind of, you know, basic frameworks or basic situations that women find themselves in are not something that really ever occurs to men to, to be involved in. And so she just has some really interesting things to say just from kind of her own experience and her own perspective. Um, and then, you know, you'll see that same kind of dynamic reinforced in terms of race and in terms of other categories mm-hmm. that we've been talking about. I mean, we, we saw it fairly recently with, um, turning red like there's this panic that you could find online of men saying well why are we talking about menstruation it's like, yeah. well half the world <laughs> yeah. is, is yeah. experiencing this as a a, a part of life yeah. so do we really need to pretend it doesn't exist and most and of them it, are like yes and it yes, wasn't we even do. about like it was just a, it was just a joke that someone thought it was menstruation you know like yes, that wasn't it wasn't even... actually menstruation no no and it was and it was also very like very anyway it was very obliquely referred to like it wasn't yeah 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 but you saw this huge backlash about that being a a point i'm like well this is part of life right (laughs) yeah and uh you know and also people being like well you know this story is about asian canadians in toronto in the 2000s and that's not my experience (laughs) it's like so you know (laughs) and i and i definitely know you know again from social media that that um Certain of my friends that really, really spoke to them in very specific ways that, frankly, it doesn't resonate with me because it's not close to my story. But that doesn't mean that I can't appreciate in other ways, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether whether it's just in, enriching my life and in, in kind of whether I'm learning something or whether, you know, it's something doesn't have to be my exact story to resonate with me. And, you know, the number of stories about white kids, white little girls that those people have, have sat through and been expected to resonate with, you know, um, there's no reason that there's no reason that I can't step outside my comfort zone or or something that's, you know, a little Mm -hmm. bit unfamiliar to me. Um, I, you know, I just, and, 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 and this kind of comes up in, in fantasy too, where I just really like fantasy and science fiction because you just have these like interesting new worlds, you know, and, and the world is such a diverse place. Like, why wouldn't I be excited to have this like Chinese based mythology that's very different from all of the Western European based mythologies that I've come across? Like, I just don't see any downside to that. Yeah. Uh, there was one review uh that was so bad like it got taken down by the website that posted it for oh no for turning oh red. no but, but it was uh they they kind of argued that pixar used to make films that were universally appealing oh my god and but this one is so specific it can't appeal to the audience at large yeah. and everyone was like you mean the one about the fish <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the one about the yeah. monsters trying to stay employed uh-huh. <laughs> Oh, we've all been there. The universal, we've all been there. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. That's well, and and Pixar that also famously made something like thirteen feature films before they made a film with a female character. Yeah, Um, that was that was another part of the backlash. Was like, what do you were you just talking about the male leads of all these Pixar films? (laughs) You can have a male toy, or a male bug, or a male fish, or a male male widower. (laughs) Yes. on an adventure 
with floating balloons traveling the continents right yes (laughs) with a male sidekick right come on this is but one girl talking about menstruation (laughs) i know i know exactly yes and the world's gonna end yeah yeah um yeah the (laughs) this is oh the variety of male yeah tall furry blue male experience short (laughs) round green male experience (laughs) well i I, beautiful diversity (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i like the way that you you identified like why this matters you Mm -hmm. know for readers and producers and also for like our culture um do you have any ideas about what we can actually do about it (laughs) if we've identified Mm -hmm. what the problem is and kind of why it's significant yes Um, are there any steps you'd recommend you know i do because it's in our outline (laughs) 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 um okay so yes and and i i've been thinking about this a lot and i will say i am personally someone who really loves data and so for me to do a bunch of research on something isn't is like like that's a feature not a bug right um i i honestly i probably spend more time researching media to read than maybe i do actually consuming media um which, you know, is, is a problem. But but I, I did come through and kind of think through, like, how do I find That's things and how do I break out of the algorithm? Because I do feel like I have some success with that. And so, yeah, I was thinking through different kinds of approaches um, that that you can use if you do want to break out of that. Um, so, so one thing I was thinking through is don't trust recommendations from sites that are trying to sell you something like Amazon. So, you know, if if there's a book you would really like to read that's out of print, Amazon is not going to try to sell it to you. Um, but maybe your library has a copy or maybe you could get it through interlibrary loan. So Amazon is biased to want to sell you certain kinds of things or things that, that where the publisher paid for sponsors or whatever. Um, so, you know, Amazon should not be your primary source of, of algorithmic recommendations if you want to break out of, of the kind of popularity trap. Um, also, I would say be careful of recommendations from sites that want to keep you in their walled garden. So in some ways, like if you've already paid for Netflix for the month, Netflix isn't trying to sell you anything else that month, but they want to keep you on the site. You know, they they don't want you, even if you have both Netflix and HBO Max, Netflix doesn't want you going to HBO Max and HBO Max doesn't want you going to Netflix even if the thing you just watched on Netflix, the really best thing you should watch afterwards is something that happens to be streaming on another site. So also be careful of that, that um, that Netflix has. And I mean, obviously, like, if something's interesting to you, you don't have to, like, run away from it. It's fine. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> your primary recommendations, you know, um, are maybe not going to be that great if they're coming from places like Netflix or the streaming sites. So instead... Um, I really like sites whose purpose are like data and discovery. So I've been a library thing member for a long time and library thing is like the sort of scrappy underdog compared to Goodreads, but they're one of the only ones there used to, there used to be a lot of book social media sites and almost all of them have died out or merged with other sites and been swallowed by Goodreads. Yeah. Yeah. Library thing is one of the only ones that's left. Um, and full disclosure, I do know the founder and and owner, so this is not, you know, this is not a completely unbiased recommendation. But also, a part of me is like, well, he's my friend because oh, he likes cool. I just double checked. Do you know who owns Goodreads? I'm sure you do. But oh, Amazon does. You, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just yeah. double checking. Like, I think I heard that. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yes. And also, full disclosure, Abe Books owns a minority 
stake in the library thing, which they bought before they were acquired by Amazon. So now technically Amazon does own a minority interest in library thing, but it sounds like they don't really care that they do. <laughs> and they they forgot. Really been... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they don't care. Well, they don't, I mean, they don't even care about Goodreads. So they yeah. super don't care about library thing. Um, unless, well, unless, well, okay. There's another site I'm now I'm not up on my like small corporate mergers. Okay, no, I think that I think they sell data. I'm, I think the other people give. I think they sell data to them now, but I don't think they own the site anyway. Um, so I really love library thing recommendations. They have less data overall than Goodreads because they have fewer users, but I get honestly get wonderful, wonderful book recommendations. You can do tag searches, which are kind of like Goodreads shelves, but I think they're better for reasons we won't get into. Next time we have our, next time we do our weekly statistics talk, we'll we'll get into. Uh, I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, you know, so if I um, if I really like, well, what's a good example? Oh yeah, so if I really like Turning Red, and I'm just like, you know what, I want to read some more you know, Asian Canadian inspired fantasy, I can do that. Truthfully, I don't know if like Asian Canadian fantasy is a thing, but like, like I could do Asian comma immigrant comma fantasy and see what came up. And you might get some really interesting things there. Um, and library thing is not motivated to make, you know, to, to prioritize one thing over another thing, one book over another book. Like they don't care what I read. They want me, you know, they want me to use the site and they want me to put data into the site but all you know for them it's kind of all equal they're they're not trying to like sell me one specific thing and so i get really good recommendations through them and then because i do work at an academic library it's pretty easy to interlibrary loan things but like that's a really good place to go um i've been on letterboxd for about a year which is like goodreads but for films and they just implemented a recommendation system which is a little weak but they also have like user created lists and so you'll have lists of things like, so if you find one film that you really like, you can look through the list and see like, oh, like one thing I've really noticed about myself is that I, I like, um, I like kind of philosophical science fiction. And so I'm willing to go like a lot deeper into sort of independent or low budget films or just less well-known films if it's like in that genre. And so if I find a list that has like that whole list of genres and I can sort it by popularity and I can sort it by um by average rating and i can sort it by streaming service which is really really nice like i have a to watch list and i can just be like okay what is something that i know i want to watch anyway that is convenient to watch this month because it happens to be on a streaming service that i described to this month so i like those sites better than the sites that are kind of actively trying to sell me something because again letterbox wants me to use the site they want me to put data into it but they could not care less if i use if i watch a big budget film or a small budget film, or if I watch mainstream stuff or indie stuff, as long as I'm, you know, putting the data in, that's all the same to them. Okay. So um, for me, it's good to know what my tastes are very specifically, because the more I know my own tastes, the better it is for me to get recommendations. So like, like I said, I really like like the kind of philosophical science fiction, like Arrival was so completely in my wheelhouse. There could not have been a film that was more perfectly made for me. <laughs> um, and so if I know that that's something I like, 
then I can get on social media and say, hey, I super like this genre. Do you have any recommendations of stuff that's not super well known? And frankly, people like recommending things because we all want to feel like experts and we want to feel like, you know. And so if you can be really specific about something that you probably know you'll like, um, or if you think, say like, oh, I like, you know, historical mysteries, or I like, um, you might get people recommending something to you that they're really excited about. Um, and if you know also, like, what kind of content are you okay with? What kind of content are you not okay with? You know, like, personally, I don't mind language that much, but violence really bothers me. So I have to check, like, if I'm watching a movie, like, if it's R for language, that tells me one thing. If it's PG for 13 for violence, that tells me something else, you know, and I have to, like, probably do more digging to figure out, like, okay, is this going to work for me or not? Um, I happen to know for myself that my opinions tend to line up with critics' opinions pretty well. At least if the critics hate something, I probably won't like it. And so if I see this like indie science fiction film that looks interesting, but then like the critics only give it a 30% on Rotten Tomatoes, I will probably skip it because I probably won't enjoy it. And that kind You've of helps me You've got the same threshold line as uh, iHeartRadio. Right. It's got to be at least <laughs> above 60. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's, you know, that's a good sign for me that like, you know, it's entirely possible for the critics to love something like they could love something, but it might be like a horror film. And I'm like, well, horror is not really my genre. So, you know, the, the critics who love or like slasher horror, especially like the critics who love the slasher film, like, OK, fine. Um, I did finally watch Get Out, but I like read the entire Wikipedia summary <laughs> and I like watched it in like 15 minute chunks <laughs> so I wouldn't get super stressed out by it. Um, uh, so, you know, there, there's a certain point where, where horror becomes culturally important enough that I have to watch it, but you know, all the, all the random stuff that you see on trailers, I'm just like, I can skip that. I don't need to watch that. Um, but yeah, the, the more, you know, your own tastes, the easier it is to ask for recommendations along the same lines. If you find something that you really enjoy, that's not well known, it's a lot more important to share that with people on social media than it is to talk about the big blockbuster thing. And like, it's fine if you want to talk about Marvel and Star Wars, but like people are going to know those exist regardless of whether <laughs> They're doing or not... fine without you yeah. trying to generate buzz. Yeah. You know, and it's, and it's fun to have a conversation about them, but if you can say, Hey, I just barely saw this, you know, kind of indie film and I like these things about it and if you can say like you know this film is a really good film for people who like sort of quiet story you know indie films about like friendship um and this film isn't good for people who you know don't like this kind of content or this kind of whatever like um like I recommended a science fiction film of, of a few months ago because I saw that it come to streaming and a friend of mine was like, oh my goodness, I love science fiction films. And so then he was able to find it. And he kind of posted something else that was really frustrating of like, he was like, I would never have found it through, you know, my own social media. Because I think he's watching Amazon Prime and their like filters were terrible. Their genre filters were terrible. And it wasn't even listed under science fiction or something. But he really enjoyed it. And so it's like, you know, that kind of person to person connection is something that you can make where again, like, I don't have to tell him to go watch a Marvel film or a Star Wars film. He'll be okay. And then, um, and then lastly, if you are looking at your media consumption and you're like, you know, and you're aware of, of cultural biases in terms of race or gender or um, orientation or uh, other aspects, 
you don't have to take on yourself the entire burden of like, (laughs) I need to find all of the good, you know, black directors, or I need to find all of the good um, Hispanic coming of age stories or something, because there are a lot of organizations that give out awards that are already trying to support that media and support those creators. And so like, so like the, um, there's the American Indian Youth Literature Awards and the Coretta Scott King Awards, which is for, those are for um, African-American authors and illustrators. And so if you're saying like, hey, I'm trying to break out of this sort of straight white male funk that I'm in, you can look at some of those organizations and look at some of those awards. Um, and like, I will be the first to say that awards juries are not infallible (laughs) you know sometimes there's some kind of mediocre stuff that you look back on that it wins in awards and sometimes there's really good stuff that doesn't get recognized but certainly it's a place to start and then like once you start there um then you can then it's like so much easier to find other good recommendations or recommendations by the same author or if you're on you know goodreads or library thing you might find a shelf that has really similar things and so like you don't have to do all the work yourself of breaking out of the, you know, breaking out of the cultural sameness because there are other organizations that are trying really, really hard to recognize creators of content that, you know, that, that speaks to certain groups. And so you can go in and just piggyback off what they're doing and find stuff that's winning awards or that's been nominated um, and use that as just kind of a key to a whole new group of people that you might not hear about otherwise. It's all really good. I have found one really good thing you can do uh, is start a weekly podcast. We're going to talk about different characters and different stories, but then have your guests suggest things that they want to talk about. And that will help you to discover new (laughs) things that are just outside of your wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm sure that does work. (laughs) In saying that, I know our, you know, the the content we cover, if we ran a statistical analysis, I'm sure we're, we're still heavily loaded towards things that represent white male sure. <laughs> points of view but um, probably but, not as much as you know as like but probably not as much as like goodreads or or mm-hmm. you know or overall box office receipts like you're probably still kind of flattening that curve a little bit but really when um so i i guess it's about half the life of this podcast at this point that that todd hasn't been the regular co-host and at that point it became it's it's gonna be me and a guest and i'm yeah. far more frequently asking the guests to recommend things mm-hmm. um and i mean i loved having todd as a co-host but we were both white men that grew up in the yeah. 1980s <laughs> you yeah. Know, yeah. That, that had certain worldviews uh you know shaped by the media that we could, had consumed and while we definitely yeah. tried to cast wider nets you know the, the at times we're catching similar things uh sure. right uh that, with that us year as, you did a, every episode of he-man was kind of strange yeah you, well <laughs> we tr- did try to mix it up with gi joe cartoons you know? oh, right, right 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 yeah for diversity <laughs> <laughs> um but having had to like like just by the nature of what i do alternate guests and then bring in those different points of views i'm getting suggested stories that i just would not have come up across i think yeah. by just me browsing the shelves or or thinking about things that had just pinged on my radar um and hopefully this podcast has been able to do that for some people uh you know that they listen to an episode and like i i've never heard of that book or or that tv show and and go and watch that or read that um i will try to be even broader uh <laughs> you know <laughs> moving forward uh yeah. and i like the idea of um before we settle on calling this episode 
um, you know, the popular part of pop culture, we, we had some note about like uh, finding the mid list. Yeah. Um, you know, trying to, you know, not only talk about the big things, which the big things are worth talking about. I'm not removing the artistic merit of anything that is successful. I think anything that makes it probably has some reason that it's resonating at that moment. Sure. Um, but I, I, I think more often than not, the, the, the things that don't maybe are, are worthy of a close look and yeah. examination um, that just as we sometimes want to say, um, you know, just because it's popular doesn't mean it's great. It's like, well, just because it's not popular, doesn't mean it's yeah. not great. Yeah, <laughs> we be able to to uh, to go explore those as well. Yes. And we have, you know, we have so many tools at hand for finding really great things, even even with the algorithms pushing things in one direction. Um, there's still so much available to, to find really, really wonderful things that we would never have discovered otherwise. Um, so mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm I'm really grateful to live in, in that world, even as you know, <laughs> even as we, we are somewhat sometimes heading towards the. Um, the uh you know the the cultural sameness um yeah you you can bust out of it if you choose <laughs> yeah um you know like the the newsletter that started this conversation mm -hmm. um makes note uh that there was some discussion of the internet that almost treated like it's gonna be a panacea that uh corrected so many ills in terms of what people watched uh, you, you know what, what was able to be produced and what was going to be consumed and it hasn't been that but no. <laughs> it has absolutely given us, like you said, so many tools that if we want to be deliberate and cognizant of the choices we're making, we can go find um, so much more than would have been possible. Like I, I even think back to <laughs> like, like just 20, 30 years ago, it would have been so yeah. different to say, I want to go find X, Y, or Z mm -hmm. um, other than going to your local librarian because they are always amazing. Uh, and always happen <laughs> yeah. at being able to help find those sorts of things. Uh, but like for anyone who's, who's not going to take that step, you still have so many tools that you're, uh, you know, at the fingertips now that, that we can pull in uh, information and, and, you know, make that deliberate choice to try and diversify a bit of, of what it is that we're consuming. Mm -hmm. Well, Kirsa, thank you for jumping on to this episode. I really do appreciate it. Uh, this was kind of a, a, an episode idea that, was formed by mistake, <laughs> but I've, <laughs> I have really uh, enjoyed hearing it. And thank you so much for your thoughts at the end, particularly about um, steps we can take to, to, you know, broaden our horizons. We can do it. <laughs> well, <laughs> listeners, uh, thank you for downloading this episode. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. As we've talked about, the algorithm does help us out if we are trying to become popular. Uh, we would like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Bye-bye. All right, looks like we're recording. So, Kirsten, are you ready if we start? Yep. All right.